Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and I am so happy to speak to Chris Hopwood today. Chris is a professor at the University of Zurich in Switzerland and an expert in the field of personality and psychopathology. Hi, Chris. It's so good to have you here. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me. It's kind of funny me being here where you grew up and you being there where I grew up. This is a it's so true. funny paradox. I, I have to say, I've been listening to this podcast. I enjoy it so much because the content is good, but also one of the things I've been missing because of the pandemic is going to conferences. And you've had so many of my good friends. It's like having little one-way conversations with a bunch of people I really like. So I'm really glad you started this up. Thanks. I'm glad too. I wanted to ask you to tell me about the research field of personality and psychopathology. Like what are the topics that are recently discussed and what are some recent findings, but also what is your work about at the moment in this field? I'll take a big picture perspective. It's snowing outside where I'm at, and that reminds me a little bit of Christmas, which we just had. So I'm going to take a Dickensian approach to this and talk about ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past in personality and psychopathology is polythetic diagnostic categories. This is where we have the idea that people either have a diagnosis or not, and there's some set of symptoms, and you have to meet some random combination of those symptoms to have that diagnosis. That's how psychopathology is still organized, like in the DSM, but nobody would do this for personality in the 21st century, right? And that's the reason that personality disorders have been, as Bob Kruger sort of described them as the vanguard of psychopathology, the kind of leading edge of psychopathology research because disorders are sort of morphing into personality dimensions in research. So it's clear to everyone that dimensional models of personality could readily replace the personality disorders. And that insight has kind of been a foot in the door for a more general transformation as instantiated, for example, in the high top model, which I think we're gonna talk about a little today. And the argument basically is that dimensions along the lines of what we study in personality could be a better framework for thinking about psychopathology. Empirically, there's not really any good reason to think that there's something specific or special about the connection between personality traits and personality disorders. It's just kind of a historical accident that that word personality had been used to describe both of those domains. Because we know empirically that personality traits are related to risks for all kinds of psychopathology, and the relationship is just as strong for things like anxiety or mood or substance use disorders as it is for personality disorders. And that's really the kind of basis for the high top um, model. The high top model is more or less, a well, I, I would describe that actually as the ghost of Christmas present. That, okay. That's a model that says, instead of thinking about psychopathology, like either people have a disorder or not, we should think about psychopathology in terms of these generalized dimensions of risk. So some people have a greater tendency for negative affect, and that puts them at risk for depression, for anxiety, for all sorts of mental health problems. Other people have uh, a tendency to be really disagreeable, and that puts them at risk for being antisocial and mean and unliked by others. Other people have a tendency to be disinhibited and impulsive, and that puts them at risk for substance use or attention deficit kinds of problems, etc. So the idea is we can use these dimensions, which are really similar to the dimensions that we normally study in personality psychology, to reorganize mental health problems in a way that's more empirically um, 
valid. And we know that this works pretty well. So Monica Vostchuk recently had a paper in clinical psych science, for example, showing that personality traits are better predictors of functioning both in the present and in the future than mental health disorders. So one thing you always do as a clinician is you try to figure out what disorders a person has had in the past and in the present, because that should tell you something about how they're going to be doing in life. But she actually found that you're better off asking what their personality is like than doing that. So we know that reconfiguring these disorders is going to be really helpful. And ultimately, that's where the field is going. The disorders will eventually be replaced by dimensions. And at this point, it's really a sort of practical and political question about how quickly that transformation happens. And the High Top Initiative is the sort of scientific consortium of researchers who are trying to both collect evidence around how to do that, but also sort of make the political argument that it should happen sooner rather than later. But I guess that brings me to the ghost of Christmas future, which is dynamics. <clears throat> There's a lot of enthusiasm about models like high top and, and the move to dimensional systems at the moment. But the dirty secret of dimensional models, and it's a little bit blasphemous, and I apologize to the people who will be angry at me, but I think they're not that useful, honestly, or at least they haven't proven to be useful yet. So I think it's helpful to step back and ask the question, like, what is clinical assessment really for? The kinds of dimensions we're talking about right now give you a sense of between person differences. How's one person different from another? And that tells us something about the probability that they will have certain kinds of problems, the probability that a diagnosis would be relevant. And as Monica showed, it helps you make predictions about what kinds of issues they might have in the present and the future. But if you're a clinician treating a patient, these kinds of between person averages become pretty uninteresting, like five minutes into the interaction with that person. What you really wanna know is about within person processes, which could even be ideographic, meaning that the, the, the kinds of problems that a person have might correlate with different other kinds of features differently across people. So clinicians care about like when, where, and why do my patient have the kinds of problems they have? How should I respond in the moment when they're having those problems? And these between person dimensional models don't provide any information about those kinds of questions. And so I think the future really lies in models that marry structure like high top with function, which is about how do person, people's problems play out over time in their daily lives? This is the reason, by the way, that my preferred theoretical model is interpersonal theory, which is the only model I know that really marries structure and function within a kind of integrated framework. The clinical assessment should take, if I understood it correctly, that there are between-person differences that can predict that if someone, I don't know, becomes is more likely to become depressed than other people, but in their clinical assessment, when they sit face-to-face -face with a patient, you think that that's less useful and they should look into like within person changes in like the person's biography? Yeah, I think the first question is how is this person remarkable or different from other people? And that's what these dimensions do a better job than categories at telling us. But that question quickly gives way to questions about, okay, but why does my patient experience particular problems in their life? So just as an example, if you take two people with alcohol problems the triggers that are associated with those alcohol problems might differ from one person to the next. One person might um, feel really lonely and start drinking. Another person might feel really angry and start drinking. Another person might want to have a good time and start drinking. And it's those triggers that, that kind of matter. So 
I think ultimately what we'd like to have is a model that puts those two things together. By structure, I mean, what is the between person arrangement of all the different kinds of problems people can have? And I think HITOP does a pretty good job at that, at least the best job of anything that we have at present and much better than, than the DSM and categories. But what we really wanna know is, well, how do those dimensions play out over time? And they might not even be associated with each other in the same ways across people. Like as an example, for most people, being disagreeable is more problematic than being agreeable. But for some people, being agreeable is actually the problem. And so the assumption that these dimensions kind of work the same way in terms of risk for problems across people probably isn't safe. And I don't know of any clinician that kind of would would be comfortable making that assumption. So that is one of the current debates in the field, going away from categorical clinical view. Are there other debates in the field? I think one of the big questions right now, because of the move to dimensional models and the integration of personality and psychopathology has to do with how to distinguish the person from their problems, right? So the recent trend has really been in the direction of like personality and psychopathology are kind of the same stuff. You can use factor analytic models to show that the dimensions of one and the other are more or less the same, that they share a common structure. And that's basically what high top is. But this raises a new issue, which is, well, what's the difference between personality and psychopathology, right? So clinically, this is pretty important because I think generally speaking, we want to be able to separate the person from the kinds of problems that the person's having. And I know that I, as a clinician, don't really go into therapy thinking, how can I change this person, kind of the essence of who they are, but rather, how can I help them adapt to the world that they live in, given who they are, which is like a different question. I've wasted a lot of neurons mulling over this issue. And I guess where I come down is I don't think we're going to solve this problem at the level of psychological assessment of person characteristics and cross-sectional data. In other words, you can't make questionnaires that can distinguish a person from a person's problems very effectively. And at the same time, that's kind of a strategy that seems to be preoccupying people at the moment. And I think that's why there's a lot more heat than there is light about this issue and why it's debated so much in the literature. Um, I suspect that the answer has something to do with how people transact with their environments. And this has been talked a lot about, but I think in order to get some traction on this question, we're going to have to come up with some fairly different ways of studying people than are, are common at the moment. A related debate, or maybe the same question, but a little differently, is how to account for both dysfunction and normal range traits and diagnostic models. So dysfunction is stuff that happens in life, like not showing up to work or like shouting profanities at strangers or drinking too much or stuff like that. And traits are like general dispositions for broad classes of behavior. So the problem, one of the many problems with categorical models is that they conflated those two things. Symptoms sometimes were traits and sometimes were problems and they were just kind of all jumbled up together. The high top model actually has the same problem because the symptoms are organized around a structure of personality dimensions. So I know that there's a group, a work group within high top that are working on this problem. But I gather that they're doing trying to do it through assessment, so I'm fairly skeptical that they're going to make a whole lot of progress, but I'll sort of withhold judgment to see what they come up with. The DSM-5 had this alternative model for personality disorders, which was dimensional, so it's a, this kind of weird juxtaposition of the old categories and the new dimensions within the same model, and clinicians can kind of choose their own adventure. 
In their framework, they have what's called criterion A, which is dysfunction, and criterion B, which are maladaptive traits. One of the problems with that model is that both criterion A and criterion B have pathological elements. So they're both about problems, and this has two consequences. First, the two things are really redundant with one another, so um, they don't add a whole lot of like non-incremental um, uh, information about people. Second, it distorts the traits. So um, whereas when we think of personality traits in personality psychology, something like the five-factor model, the traits are normally distributed roughly, and, and so they have tails at both ends. They're fairly uncorrelated with one another, not perfectly, but, but largely uncorrelated with one another. In contrast, the maladaptive traits only have one tail. They only go out to the extreme that nomothetically is most related to problems. So agreeableness, for example, is antagonism. It only goes into the sort of low agreeableness end, and there isn't any information about problematically high agreeableness. And then because it has maladaptive content in it, all of the all of the variables are super highly correlated, much more so than the five factor traits, which is really a distortion of personality dimensions. And so even though arguments are, well, this is basically just the five factor model, but a maladaptive variant, it's really a qualitatively different animal than traits as we typically think about them in, in personality psychology. So another approach is the five factor model of maladaptive traits, which is similar to the alternative model, but it has maladaptive tails on both ends. So, so you take a trait like agreeableness and you have really high agreeableness and really low agreeableness and you try to put them into the same dimension. The problem with this strategy is it's never been shown that you can take a model like that and fit five factors to it. Because what ends up happening is the tails of that distribution both have problems in them. And one thing we know for sure in clinical psychology is that problems in between person data, problems love one another. They all like to hang out. So those dimensions collapse on themselves and you need more than five factors to account for the data. So there is this idea that's kind of cool. Uh, uh, Whitaker and Hagler had a paper about this uh, a while ago that I really like where you basically have a two-step procedure. First, you would measure normal range traits with the five-factor model, and then you would measure dysfunctions experienced by the individual, which are probabilistically related to traits but are not the same thing, um, and assessed separately. I think this is a more tractable approach, but so far those dysfunctions haven't really been articulated theoretically or comprehensively within that system. That's just the, sort of the idea that you could do this. So I guess when you think about all those different approaches, I've come to the conclusion that the best thing we could do at, at the moment would be a two-part model with the first part being dysfunctions. These dysfunctions tend to be really highly correlated, as I mentioned, and thus they can be effectively summarized with like a single global number of like, how poorly is this person doing in life? But then for individual patients, you would wanna have a much more specific list of like, what is this person's particular problems? And then the second part of the system would be uh, normal range traits, something along the lines of the five-factor model. So this would be similar to the alternative model in DSM-5, except for the traits would be normal range and bipolar rather than maladaptive and unipolar. It's also similar to the five-factor model plus dysfunction kind of framework, but um, again, the traits would be normal range, and I would include a general problems factor that's kind of not included in that model. And I guess one thing I like about the alternative model is that criterion A has a developmental theory underlying its content that I think is useful. So I probably would do something like that. So I've written about this in a few different places, but mine remains a very strongly minority opinion among my friends and colleagues. 
So that's that's sort of where things are at. Is there anything else that you see is discussed too little or even neglected in the field and you see like, oh, there's really a blind spot that we haven't covered yet? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a big challenge in the world of personality and psychopathology is clinical translation. I guess this has been an undercurrent of what I've said so far. Sometimes there's kind of an attitude among academics that clinicians are like not smart enough or not well read enough or too biased to apply evidence. But I think, if I'm honest, I think the problem is a little bit more with the nature of the evidence itself. So again, I think it's helpful to step back for us who are doing personality and psychopathology research to step back and ask the question, what is assessment for? Like, what, what are we doing this for? If we continue to focus our work on between person differences and cross-sectional data, clinicians who care most of the time about a person's personal configuration of traits and problems, what their triggers are, what their unique history is, what seems to work for them, rather than how they're different from other people on average, are just not going to be interested because that kind of between person research simply doesn't apply to most of what they're trying to do with their patients. So far, I think this is one of the explanations for the relatively muted reaction in the clinical community to the high top initiative. And I think that's reasonable because we as personality and psychopathology researchers really need to try a little harder to make our research relevant to clinicians interested in helping their patients. Now, there's good reasons that we don't do this. And the main one is that it's really hard to do. It's like harder to do than the kind of research that we normally do, which is already pretty difficult. And it requires new ways of thinking about our research designs. But in the end, you know, helping clinicians help patients is sort of the point of what we're doing. So I think that should be a stronger driver of how we approach our work. I guess at a more general level, and in some ways this is related, I think there's a little bit of a paradox in maybe academics in general, but in particular in psychology and clinical psychology, in that People selected to this field, and in particular to academic positions, because they're really good at talking, at convincing other people that they know something. But in order to be an effective psychologist, you really need to be good at listening. And those aren't opposites. It's not like you can only be good at one or the other, but I don't know that they're super strongly correlated either. So we have a, a kind of basic paradox from the start. I, I've always thought about this a lot like in selecting students, particularly in selecting clinical students and like not getting too distracted by somebody being really good and convincing at talking. I'm, I'm a lot more interested in people who are good at listening. I think people who are good at talking take up a lot of space. They are really impressive at first sight, but in the end, I think there's a relatively low ceiling for a person who's good at talking but not listening on what they can offer in terms of impact to psychology. So I'm kind of always on the lookout for this, and I, I'm not particularly, I'm not saying I'm particularly good at myself, but I, it, you know, the, the people I see who are good at it are the kind of people I want to be more like. My patients have taught me a lot about this because patients don't tolerate people who are not you know, clinicians who are not good at listening. So I think I've learned a lot from them and I'm really grateful to my patients for this reason. So yeah, I guess I think that listening is not talked about enough. It's not focused on enough. For instance, I can't think of a single lab in personality or clinical psychology that studies listening as a scientific phenomenon, which is weird to me, given what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I think there's a literature and communications about this, but maybe somebody should be studying in our field too. Mm -hmm.
I really like that. So I want to talk about the special issue that you and Aidan Wright just co-edited for the Journal of Personality on integrating and distinguishing personality in psychopathology. So maybe you've summarized some of this research already, but could you maybe highlight some of the findings that have been reported in that special issue and also how you as co-editors see the field moving forward? Yeah, that um, issue was recently published and all of its contents should be open access for the first two years. We have an arrangement with Wiley, the publisher, about that. Nice. Um, we were really delighted by the papers in this issue. We had a, one paper from the high top group, papers uh, from the perspectives of the NIMH RDOC initiative, which is kind of a biological approach to understanding psychopathology, from the DSM alternative model that I spoke about before, from developmental psychopathology, from experimental and decision-making paradigms of research, and from psychoanalytic and cognitive behavioral therapeutic approaches. The idea was to sample people from a very wide variety of backgrounds and perspectives and get their takes. Uh, a sort of core question, which is, what's the difference between personality and psychopathology? The most striking thing about the issue to me is that nobody was able to give a convincing answer to this question. Wow, okay. So for example, the high top group is is explicitly an empirical approach and they did have an answer to this question but it was based entirely on theory or a conceptual understanding of the difference no evidence was brought to bear on this question and no one else had any evidence that can answer this question either Les Moore did a paper that I liked about the alternative model showing that personality and psychopathology are conflated in maladaptive traits like I was talking about before the reason I like this paper is because it exposes a kind of paradox, because on the one hand, everyone in the issue agreed personality is different than psychopathology and we should figure out what that difference is. On the other hand, most people in the field really like the idea of using maladaptive traits, which by their very nature conflate the person and their problems in the same dimensions. So again, though, that paper didn't provide any evidence-based solution about how to separate personality from psychopathology, it just kind of exposed maladaptive traits as more part of the problem than part of the solution. So most of the papers were, were not empirical, but rather were conceptual. Even if they had data, they sort of were used to make broader conceptual points rather than test specific hypotheses. So, you know, they, they had some interesting and novel hypotheses about the difference between personality and psychology. Many of them provided sort of empirical paradigms that have promise for helping us figure this out. But nobody at this point in our history, at least nobody that we could find, is able to point to any evidence about what the difference is between personality and psychology. So Aidan and I summarized those findings in our editorial paper in that issue, but then we also wrote a paper that elaborated these ideas along with the and that paper is coming out in Nature Reviews uh, this month. In our way of thinking, the issue comes down to person-environment transaction. So personality has something to do with what the person's like in general, like I was talking about before. The environment has something to do with the situations or contexts in which that person tends to find themselves. And psychopathology happens at the intersection of those two things. When the person in a particular context is maladaptive, something goes wrong, it's not working for them or for others, it, particularly if it recurs or is especially severe, that's how we know that a person has psychopathology. So this way of thinking has, I think, some important implications for how we should do research moving forward. On the one hand, it sounds kind of obvious what I just said, but on the other hand, that's not been the assumptions that we've been using in research on psychopathology, generally speaking. So one implication is that any model that only focuses on person characteristics, including the five-factor model, the alternative model, personality disorders, high top, 
really only has half of the picture at best because it's only focusing on the person, not the situations or context that, that person is in. Second, I think we have very little left to learn about personality and psychopathology from cross-sectional self-report data, particularly in weird samples. Like I think we could just kind of stop doing that and we wouldn't lose very much. Third, we know very little about the timescales um, that make the most sense for studying person environment transactions. So, you know, how do, we, how do we even know how often we should sample people as they go through their life to figure out what psychopathology is as people interact and transact with their environments? Fourth, whereas most research up to this point for practical reasons has assumed nomothetic effects that basically variables correlate with each other the same way for everybody, it's probably more reasonable from a scientific perspective to begin with the opposite assumption that variables correlate differently. There's the function relationship between person characteristics and problems vary from person to person, and then test upwards to see how well those models generalize to groups. So these are all pretty different assumptions than the ones that have been guiding the vast majority of research up to this point. So, you know, I think figuring out how personality and psychopathology are different, which in some ways is a precondition to integrating the two domains, are going to require a radically different and more expensive and time-consuming approach to research than has been typically the case. By the way, uh, you might have seen that Sandra Motz and Gabby Harari just did a paper come out in JPSP about person environment transactions, which was really cool. I made a little dent in this problem, but it's also like a nice example of how challenging and different this kind of work is going to be I think if you generalize that to psychopathology. Anyway, this is just my take, and I, you know, I'm not trying to speak for the entire issue. I really would encourage people to check out that issue because there was a lot of really interesting ideas about how we could approach this problem by a, a diverse a range of scholars. That sounds really interesting. But you've also done other work, for example, on authenticity. Can you tell me about how you came across that topic? So I actually started this work with Alicia Lewandowski at Michigan State and some of the students that were on our psychotherapy team. She works just downstairs from you, I gather. So we had a team who that was focused on helping first-year trainees treat people with so-called personality disorders, whatever that is. So these patients were relatively severe, at least relative to the other patients in the clinic uh, at MSU. And our therapists were, were pretty green, not just because they were Spartans, but because it was their first time trying to do this. So we watched the, every video of every therapy session that we had on our team. And one thing that, that I had always noticed is that the therapists were like really tight. They were afraid of making mistakes. They seemed to be afraid of saying the wrong things. Maybe they were afraid of what I was thinking as I was watching them on video. They just seemed like, like turtles with their heads in their shells. And it was pretty clear that the patients could see that too. And it doesn't promote trust or alliance when you feel like your therapist is tight and not open and kind of closed off. Alicia and I ended up thinking like, this is kind of the core thing that we need to help our students get over in order for them to help their patients because it often didn't go well. And it seemed to often be traceable back to this dynamic. But I think that word is important, dynamic, because authenticity is a dynamic process. When, when you go to the literature on authenticity, the empirical literature uh, over the last few decades, you find this weird confound across different ways of thinking about authenticity in which the phenomenon would be described as a within person or within dyad process, but then it would be measured with a questionnaire 
that gets at between person disposition. So I know I'm going back to the same theme over and over and over again, but I guess I think it's sort of important. So like in these papers, the introduction section would say something like, you know, first you have to have a read of what the social situation is, you have to be socially aware, and then you have to have some level of insight so that you can know how you feel about that situation. And then you have to be able to express however you feel in a way that the other person feels or experiences as authentic. But then you get the end of the intro, you start reading the methods and they're like, okay, so we're gonna measure all three of those things with a questionnaire, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't measure a process like that with scales from a questionnaire that gets at between person differences. It's just the wrong kind of data to get at a process. The other thing that we noticed in this literature is that psychologists and maybe lay people have somehow come to think of authenticity as universally positive. If you ask people whether they're authentic, it seems like it'd be better to say yes than to say no, like we should try to be more authentic or whatever. And measures of authenticity share that bias. So empirically, they're just dripping with positive valence. They correlate positively with all the good stuff and negatively with all the bad stuff. From a personality perspective, they correlate with high extroversion, low neuroticism, high agreeableness, high conscientiousness. When you look at the literature on authenticity, this didn't seem right to us, particularly the part about agreeableness. So like in foundational texts from the existential or psychoanalytic literature, authenticity was not described as a universally positive attribute. A lot of times it's disagreeable to be authentic with someone, and this is why we don't do it all the time. It's also why we admire people who tell us the hard truth or who stand up to power, because it's really hard to do that. It takes bravery and courage. On the other hand, sometimes it's a bad idea to be authentic with someone, which is another reason that we don't do it all the time. It can be rude, it can be unpopular, it can be socially ineffective. Nobody likes people who kick people while they're down or shame people about weaknesses that everyone can see but no one talks about, right? So authenticity to us shouldn't be agreeable. It should be neither agreeable nor disagreeable. It should depend on context. So we felt that we needed to kind of reboot this literature a little bit. And, and, and to do that, we wanted to get at the behavioral core of authenticity uh, and to define it in a way that's not conflated with agreeableness. So we define that core as realness or the tendency to act in accord with your inner feelings, regardless of the social context. Unique in our definition is that you don't have to have good insight about this. You don't have to have a particularly good read on the situation or an ability to read situations well. Your authentic behavior doesn't have to be adaptive or maladaptive. It's, it's a relatively simpler concept than, than most measures of authenticity propose. Being real just means being yourself no matter what. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, right? And people vary in the likelihood that they're going to be real across different situations. So I guess we felt like this was a good place to start a kind of foundation for the next generation of authenticity research. That sounds sort of grandiose as it comes out of my mouth, but I just think we kind of got to a point where this paradox of trying to measure processes with, with dispositional measures wasn't gonna get us much further. So, so once you have this core in place, you can start adding concepts like insight or social skills or adaptivity. And that I think would be particularly effective if you paired um, these different concepts with designs that allow for transaction in environments. So again, we get back to this issue of, of the idea that the next wave of, uh, or answering the next wave of interesting questions in personality psychology is probably going to require a, a, a different and more difficult approach to research. So this is a big challenge. 
That's really interesting. So do you think bringing more realness as a therapist, coming back to your students, would help in any situations, whether it's nice for the patient to hear the real therapist or not? No, I think it's more subtle than that. I think that on average, it would have been, and I could say it this way, I, I would have liked to have helped my my student therapist feel more comfortable and um, able to be more themselves in those sessions. So I think, yeah, a, a sort of shift in the direction of more realness would have been good. And I, I think um, I would have been a better supervisor if I could have figured out how to help them do that. But that doesn't mean that I would say that I want every therapist to always be completely real with every patient about everything. But I, I would say in therapists who feel really nervous and don't act like themselves, patients can tell, and then it's hard for them to open up as well. And so for them, probably moving in the direction of greater realness would have been more effective. So one last line of research, you do a lot of research and a very prolific author. One last new line of research that you've published uh, some papers about are on sustainable behavior. Can you tell me more about your findings and other interesting findings in that like line of research? A lot of this stuff I've done with Vipka Blydorn and our students, Madeline Lanehausen and Ted Schwaba and some other colleagues uh, throughout the world. Uh, Vipka recently did a paper in a longitudinal Swiss representative panel study showing that there's co-development between pro-environmental attitudes and behavior. So this is important because in the sustainability literature, there's these questions of like, okay, but do people who have pro-environmental attitudes actually enact behaviors that support those attitudes or not? So this is not causal evidence, but it gets us closer to being confident that, yeah, in fact, as people's attitudes shift in the direction of caring more about the environment, their behavior shifts along with it. We've done some similar studies asking questions about what kinds of people have pro-environmental attitudes and exhibit pro-environmental behaviors. And again, we used longitudinal studies to examine that as a co-developmental issue. So... We did a couple of studies in population representative samples in Germany with the GSOP data and in New Zealand with Chris Sibley's New Zealand Attitudes and Values Survey data. Uh, that second paper was also with Tassiana Milfant. And the goal was to test both cross-sectional and longitudinal correlations between personality traits and pro-environmental attitudes. So in both studies, we sampled people for a decade and consistent with previous research, we found that personality traits have strong cross-sectional correlations with pro-environmental behavior. Alastair Suter and Renee Lotus and colleagues recently had a meta-analysis about this actually in perspective. So our results more or less show the same thing. People with more adaptive personalities, particularly involving high agreeableness, high conscientiousness, low neuroticism, high openness, were more likely to have pro-environmental attitudes. We found somewhat weaker and much less consistent evidence regarding co-development. Part of this is probably methodological. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but when you test this with bivariate growth models with relatively few assessments, the confidence intervals around the co-developmental associations tend to get pretty big. So that's probably part of it is that we don't have super precise estimates about co-development. But I guess when I think about those two studies, you can kind of draw two conclusions. One, changes in traits, especially openness and agreeableness, do seem to track with changes in pro-environmental behaviors. But second, we have a lot to learn about what kinds of people 
um, care more about the environment, do more things that are, are sustainable. So in our lives, we've been trying to follow this up in a couple of different directions. The first one um, is we thought, you know, it'd be helpful to have a general taxonomy of pro-environmental behaviors. Because mostly in the research, people study like one kind of behavior or a subset of behaviors. Often these behaviors are highly contextualized to a certain place or environment or time. The advantage of thinking about pro-environmental behaviors using latent dimensions is that you can get more leverage for research design to assess a kind of disposition to act in a pro-environmental way rather than specific, maybe unreliable non-generalizable patterns of behavior. So we found four dimensions in a representative American sample. One was transportation, one was consumption of energy and goods, a third was diet, and a fourth was activism. So, you know, I, I think we also found some interesting preliminary correlates of these different dimensions. For example, openness was more related to activism than the other more behavioral dimensions. So activism is like who you vote for and whether you volunteer and donate to charities. So they don't have a direct effect on the environment. They have a rather indirect effect on the environment. And this seems to be what openness is kind of driving. Consumer behavior of energy and goods actually wasn't that related to personality at all. Mostly that was driven by demographic factors and in particular things like SES. On the one hand, some people can afford to have stuff that's really bad for the environment. And on the other hand, some people can afford to do things that are more sustainable. And that seems to be like a little more important for that dimension, which is usually the first thing we think about when we think about sustainable behaviors. It's like what do people buy and how much and that kind of thing. Another thing that we've been doing is trying to go beyond the domains of personality to look at lower order, narrower facets of personality. So we've been using the 10 aspect model uh, developed by Colin DeYoung a few years ago, largely because of some work by Luke Smiley and his colleagues showing that the aspects are really informative about individual differences in various kinds of moral behavior. Um, I think Jesse talked about that in one of the recent podcasts that you guys did. So we found uh, that the compassionate aspect of agreeableness and the openness or curiosity aspect of openness to experience seems to be carrying the most weight when it comes to pro-environmental attitudes and behaviors. Although there's some complexity depending on which kinds of sustainability variables um, you look at. So in general, I guess my conclusion overall from these these two directions is that you know we need to move beyond really broad vague questions about like how do big five traits relate to attitudes in general to much more specific questions that parse different kinds of variables on the environment side and different narrower facets of personality on the individual differences side and then add to that like what is the context because sustainable behavior for example in switzerland is very different than sustainable behavior maybe even in the states but certainly in majority world countries where the, the whole problem is kind of of a different uh, flavor the third thing that we're doing actually we're just starting this so i can't report anything is that we've, we've launched some longitudinal studies here in zurich that are going to try to answer these questions in a little bit more detail. A lot of the longitudinal studies we've used so far aren't designed to ask this question. So you kind of have to use fairly impoverished measures of the environmental stuff and of personality. So we're trying to use longer and, and more specific personality measures to ask a lot more questions about sustainable attitudes and behaviors so that we can track development and co-development in a little bit of a finer uh, grain. I guess overall my feeling is that this is a pretty important topic for the planet and so you sort of ask yourself well as personality psychologists what can you do about this and trying to figure out what kinds of people are more or less likely to help the problem is maybe the best thing that we can do. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about the work that we've got planned in this area. Cool that sounds very exciting.
You've also researched veganism and motivations to be vegan. Can I subsume that under sustainability or would you say that is a different research line? Yeah, I mean, so there's a variety of reasons not to eat animals. One of them is because eating animals makes the environment problem worse. It's not the main reason I don't eat animals. So, so yeah, we've, we've, you know, this is obviously a personal interest for me. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, I'm at the point in my career where a person asks themselves, like, what is the best way for me to spend my time? I, I think it really becomes a matter of trying to support junior people and trying to have some kind of impact that you think might help the world in some small way. So I think I've done a lot of navel gazing over the last few years about this question. And I sort of landed on this is probably one of the things I'd like to invest my time in. Mm -hmm. So it started when Vipka and I got some funding from a, an agency called Animal Charity Evaluators to, to study motives to be vegetarian. And we sampled <clears throat> people in the States and in the Netherlands to derive a, a measure of motives to be vegetarian. And we found three factors, health, the environment, and animal rights. In retrospect, I wish I had included preventing pandemics in that study. Oh, interesting. It's become, it's become pretty obvious that like that's another good reason to not eat animals because that's the reason we're having a pandemic is because people ate animals. So, but with the skills that we do have, we found some interesting patterns in these data. First, health was by far the most common reason for non-vegetarians to consider a vegetarian diet. This is interesting because it's clearly the worst reason to consider a vegetarian diet. By worst, I mean that there's very strong evidence regarding the negative effects of eating animals on the environment. The social justice aspect of eating animals in terms of exploitation of both non-humans and humans uh, who are exploited in animal agriculture is also like really rock solid and well-established. In contrast, health is pretty equivocal. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly possible for it to be a healthy omnivore, at least physically healthy. And it's also perfectly possible to be an unhealthy vegan. Mm -hmm. So um, we also know that when people have health as their main motivation to be vegetarian, they're more likely to go back to eating meat than if mm -hmm. they have more ethical reason for being vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because it's not a good reason to have in the first place. So I guess... The implication of that finding is that creating a more sustainable and just world is going to have to do with increasing awareness of the consequences of animal agriculture. I think a particularly interesting group are political liberals who are omnivores, because on the one hand, they care about climate change, they care about social justice. On the other hand, they paradoxically do the one thing that harms both of these things at the same time. After that study, we also wanted to study the opposite question of what motivates people to eat animals. And it turns out that the answer is not the opposite. So the things that make people want to eat animals are not just the opposite of the things that make people want to be vegetarian. Yeah, no one is like, oh, I eat meat to be unhealthy. Exactly. Yeah. In yeah. fact, many people eat meat to be healthy. They'll say, well, you have to eat meat for protein or whatever, which is not true, but many people say that. Mm -hmm. Here you actually find four motives. People will generally say some combination of I eat meat because it's natural to do. Humans have always done it, which is also not true. It's normal to do. Everybody does it. Uh, it's necessary to do because it's the best way to be healthy or it's nice to taste. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, of these four reasons, the only one that's supported by any sort of empirical evidence is that it's nice to taste. Now, this is subjective evidence. Not everybody likes the taste, uh, but for many people, meat is indeed tasty. I think that meat is tasty, although I don't eat it. But in my memory, I enjoyed it when I did. There's nothing particularly natural about eating animals. And indeed, 
in the history of our species, it was quite rare for our ancestors to do this until really recently, until organized agriculture, basically. Um, it's only normal because of sociological habits that ultimately emanate from economic pressures that are manipulated by big businesses and cultural traditions. I guess you could argue about this, but in my view, doing something that's wrong because it makes companies money or because your parents did it isn't describable as normal. It's clearly not necessary in the sense that many people, including myself, my partner, my dog, my toddler, can function perfectly well on a vegan diet. One of the other interesting things we found with these dimensions is that they're fairly different in terms of their correlates. I guess the most interesting pattern we found was that people who rationalize eating meat by claiming that it's natural and normal tend to have maladaptive personality characteristics, and in particular, profiles similar to antisocial personality or psychopathy. So if you say that it's nice to eat, that's kind of a normal thing to say. It doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, and you can just kind of put off to the side the consequences of that. It's sort of hedonistic. If, on the other hand, you say that it's, it's a natural thing or a normal thing to eat, that sort of implies that you've thought about it and come down on the conclusion that it's the right thing to do. And people who have those kinds of views tend to be pretty antagonistic to people and to animals. So I guess one way of framing the take home here is that people who are not nice to humans are also unlikely to be nice to non-humans and to rationalize that by saying, well, this is normal, this is natural, this is like okay to do. I'm currently working on some follow-up work on that stuff that I could talk about, but I think even more important to me, again, partly related to my career stage, is, is my work trying to establish the field as, as a kind of standalone subfield and to support junior scholars in this area. So um, my colleagues, Jared Piazza and Christoph Dunt and I recently founded the Society for the Psychology of Human-Animal Intergroup Relations, which is a mouthful, which we use the acronym FAIR Society to denote. So this society, we've supported speaker series, we have a blog, there's an animal advocacy conference associated with it at the University of Kent. In, in our speaker series, we've been, and in our blog, we've been featuring the work of early career researchers from all over the world. And it's really, I gotta tell you, it's super exciting to see how much enthusiasm and how quickly this field is growing. It's you know, honestly one of the few things that makes me somewhat hopeful about the future uh, these days. I'm also super excited that we're actually establishing a journal uh, on this topic. I think this might be the first public announcement of that, uh, actually, so you're breaking news, uh, like it or not. But we're really excited about this uh, journal. Uh, this is a nice turn for me developmentally because you know, it allows me to focus on something that I think is really important. For me personally, I think it's the most important thing I can think of to study but also because it's a domain where I can express my generativity a bit at a, at a kind of critical time to start to try to be a catalyst for a field that's just full of uh, really smart young scientists. If you're interested, you can check us out at fairsociety.org and uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. Cool, that sounds very interesting. What are some upcoming projects on that topic? Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about is a cross-cultural study that we did recently did in collaboration with Mercy for Animals, which is a nonprofit organization in the States. Um, we collected a thousand uh, people and representative samples from 23 different countries, so 23,000 people across five continents. And the goal was to examine things like speciesism, feelings about animals, also dietary habits, familiarity and openness to plant-based alternatives to meat, 
um, to test how that varies by culture. And I think this is going to provide really interesting data, both about cross-cultural differences in diet and human-animal relations, but also it will help organizations like Mercy for Animals target advocacy uh, programs in places where they might have the most effect. So we just collected those data and we're just starting to analyze them now. Um, my student Adam Nissen and colleague uh, Gabrielle Alaru are taking the lead on data analysis. So we'll have something to report soon. And then I mentioned that we're collecting longitudinal studies here in Switzerland and the animal stuff is actually part of those too. And we're, we're trying to fold in an intervention component. I should say I'm not convinced by the existing evidence that psychological interventions are all that effective for changing these kinds of behaviors. I actually think encouraging a vegan diet or other sustainable behaviors is most likely a sociological, a political and economic problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of my other interests is in how people change. And I've pursued this in psychotherapy research, in personality change research with Vibka and other members of the Personality Change Consortium. And so we're trying to leverage the intervention in, in these longitudinal studies to examine if and how people can change, how long those changes last, et cetera. So we're excited about that work as well. Really cool. So lastly, I would like to ask you, though you've worked as a professor at Michigan State University at the University of California at Davis, and now at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. So what tips and tricks do you have for other researchers that move to a new university or also a new country? Well, the first thing I would recommend is marrying above your station. Uh, I wouldn't have gotten a job at Davis or in Zurich if I weren't married to Vika Blydorn. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's all that helpful to most people. <laughs> Probably not. No. You know, she's one at eight billion or so. So, and I already, I already have her, and I'm not giving her back. Um, I, you know, that's another way of saying I've been really lucky. In terms of choosing university, I mean, the market is so tight that most people feel lucky just to have a job. I know I do. And, and actually, I'm, you know, I, I can't imagine a better job for me. So I'm, I feel really lucky. But there are some things I, that sort of surprised me along the way in which I wish I'd known earlier. I think I have somewhat too much faith in people. And um, I think it pays to be a little skeptical and measured. I think as a junior person, I didn't realize how much department climate matters and that having colleagues who are supportive of one another and who work in a system that's well-resourced and fair make for a much nicer working environment than the alternative. Mm -hmm. And it's not like that everywhere. Um, so that's sort of hard to figure out in a job interview, but I think it's really critical information for people who have the luxury of being choosy. In terms of the transition, I guess I've also come to think about this a little differently across the course of my career. You know, one of the nice things about academic jobs is that all of the really core stuff, like the research you do, the involvement in societies or journals, your collaborations, they stay constant regardless of where you are, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the stuff that really matters the most to me and the most to most of the people that I know, and we can do it anywhere, right? The institution specific stuff is definitely a challenge. You have to learn like the codes and the passwords and the acronyms and the people and the political dynamics. And this takes a lot longer than you might think. I still don't understand the administrative structure of any of the universities I've ever worked at, frankly. Um, you know, it's especially challenging when that all happens in a language that you barely understand, which is the case for me right now. Um, but these things do end up coming with time. And I guess the lesson that I've learned about that is to be patient and to kind of hold back on trying to be too involved with the institutional stuff, the political stuff, 
and just focus on keeping your own research and teaching strong in the meantime. I think I've, I've been in a lot more trouble trying to do too much than not doing enough at universities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, yeah it was nice talking to you. Take care.